Good morning, everybody. You didn't go, huh? You're asleep. I'd ask you, please, to make sure you silence your phones. That'd be great. Sometimes there's no service down here, but uh, for whatever reason, the carriers seem to be coming through. Good evening. My name is Michael Suarez, and as director of Rare Book School, it's my privilege to welcome you to the second of our summer series of, of public lectures. Uh, this evening's lecture has been made possible not only by the intellectual generosity of our speaker, but also by funding from a National Endowment for the Humanities matching grant for Rare Book School's uh, Global Book Histories Initiative. Our speaker this evening, Emil Shriver, is an expert on Jewish cultural history in general and Jewish book history in particular. By any account, he is a rock star. Having published and lectured extensively throughout Europe, Israel, and North and South America, he is currently general director of the Jewish Historical Museum and indeed of the entire Jewish cultural quarter in Amsterdam, which includes the Portuguese synagogue, the Holocaust Memorial, the Children's Museum, and the National Holocaust Museum presently in development. As if all that were not enough. In addition, Professor Shriver is professor of Jewish book history at UVA. That is to say, the other UVA, the University of Amsterdam, as well as curator of the private Berginsky collection of Hebrew manuscripts and printed books in Zurich. From 1986 to 2015, Professor Shriver served as curator of the Bibliotheca Rosenthalia, which is part of the remarkable special collections holdings of the University of Amsterdam. Among his many accomplishments while at the Rosenthalia, his greatest was surely the essay he published on the transmission of Jewish knowledge in manuscripts and printed books in the Oxford Companion to the Book. <laughs> professor Schreier has been a visiting professor of Jewish studies at the universities of Zurich and Basel and is executive editor of the massive Encyclopedia of Jewish Book Cultures scheduled to be published by Brill in 2020. We are deeply honored to have him among our number this evening. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you very much, Professor Suarez, for the introduction. I hope that I can live up to this kind of uh, expectation. Uh, let's give it a try. The Jewish book since the invention of printing, I decided that I would start with one of the strangest images in the Jewish book since the invention of printing, because it actually goes to show the, one of the, that one of the biggest problems while dealing with Jewish books, especially with artistic Jewish books, which is the question, are Jews allowed to include images into the, in their books, uh, is not so much of a problem for many Jews. This is a Hebrew manuscript, which is why I left the three or four Hebrew letters at the right-hand side. This is a Hebrew manuscript produced in Corfu. Uh, probably the art was done in Venice, and it contains basically all kinds of litur liturgical texts connected to Jewish marriage. Uh, we see an image of God here. This is something, God creating the world. This is something that you would otherwise not expect in a Hebrew manuscript. There is one occasion in the medieval Hebrew manuscript in which we have an image of God, which was actually painted over otherwise with the scene of Moses receiving the tablets of the law on Mount Sinai because the Jews were not allowed to, to provide images of God. But in general, the whole issue of illustrating Jewish books is one really that has to do with the, uh, I, was, I would call the second dimension, two-dimensional or three-dimensional. Two-dimensional images in Hebrew, in Hebrew books were generally allowed because the Jews interpreted the second biblical commandment that shall not make graven images in connection with the third commandment which is you shouldn't bow unto them and the third dimension three dimensional uh, statues 
will always be forbidden, and that images of God will always be forbidden. But certain Jewish patrons would actually go so far as to hire a non-Jewish artist. This non-Jewish artist was invited to do an, a full cycle of images that had to do with all the women in the biblical book of Genesis, and he decided to start off with the story of creation, and he decided to do it the way that he wanted to do it. And the interesting thing is, the Jewish patron didn't mind, because this book was used, it's full of user marks, and it was used as a present, uh, probably for a wedding on the island of Corfu, which is a very interesting case, a pointing case, because it goes to show the extent to which Jewish book culture and Jewish book cultures, which is why we decided to call our encyclopedia an encyclopedia of Jewish book cultures, why Jewish book cultures are really about the surrounding cultures as well. It's not only about Judaism, but the Jewish book is always part of a surrounding culture, if only for the fact that Jews have always been a minority culture. You will always have some kind of influence, and especially in books, and as such, the history of the Jewish book, which is a wonderful line that I take from Professor David Stern at Harvard, uh, the Jewish book is also a history of the Jews. The Jewish tradition is one of constant literacy and is one of constant transmission of knowledge through books. And the traditional people of the book uh, motto, which is actually a very modern motto, which was only taken on by the Jews in the 19th century during the emancipation, Jews would never call themselves Amasefa, the people of the book, before the 19th century. And it's actually a term taken from the Quran. Uh, where reference is made to the two religions of the book, one being Judaism, the other one being Christianity. But it is true. I mean, Jewish tradition is a tradition in which books are, are considered very important. And the period that I want to concentrate on here now is the period since the invention of printing. I only have half an hour. I mean, I could speak a week about medieval Hebrew manuscripts, um, but I'll, I'll push you through a period of time very swiftly, if I start to speak too fast and you have trouble keeping up with me, just let me know Then I'll speak slower for two minutes and then you have to ask me again. The, uh, this is actually one of only six uh, Hebrew incunables, Hebrew incunabula, the first Hebrew books printed in the, uh, in the, in the 15th century uh, that were printed in Rome. And these first six books were studied basically by two great experts, one of my predecessor in those, Tayana, uh, Adrie Offenberg, the other one is Shimon Jakerson in uh, working in, in St. Petersburg, and the two of them don't agree on the order of printing of the six. Uh, why should you otherwise have two experts? The, uh, <laughs> the, so he uh, Offenberg believes that he can actually set the strict order in which these books were, in the, were printed, and this will be the fifth one, and Jakerson says, well, we're never going to know. Uh, I Although one is my teacher, Offenberg, I actually tend to follow the other one, but who am I to disagree? I mean, the, uh, it was printed between 1469 and 1473, and a total of 145 editions uh, printed before 1501, for the yeah, 1st of January 1501, were printed in Hebrew by a very small group of Jews living in the Mediterranean area. The majority were printed in uh, Italy, a substantial group were printed in Spain and Portugal, and only one was printed right after the expulsion of the Jews from uh, Spain and Portugal, 1492, in 1493, in Constantinople, in the city of Constantinople, by immigrants who actually moved from Spain to, uh, to Constantinople. Of course, the invention of printing, and I don't have to explain in, in, a, in a group like this, the in, in, invention of printing and the explosion of knowledge that it brought about uh, didn't mean that the interest in, uh, in, handwritten, in handwritten books suddenly diminished. I mean, there was an enormous interest in, handwritten, in the production of handwritten books in the period following the invention of printing, and certainly in the first years, people had to find their text somewhere. And the only texts that were available were the texts that were written by hand. And there's a wonderful case of this, the most famous Jewish printer of the 16th century, Daniel Bomberg. It sounds like a very Jewish name. He could have been, could have been Goldberg, could have been whatever. This is Bomberg, but he was actually Flemish, Christian, Daniel van Bombergen. He came from Antwerp to uh, Venice, and he worked in Antwerp. And he published, in cooperation with Jewish scholars, the entire canon of Jewish literature over a period of some let's say between 15, 
16 and 1549. Um, he moved back and forth between Antwerp and, uh, and, and Venice, but he published the, it, the three editions of the Babylonian Talmud, the edition of the Talmud Yerushalmi, the editions of the Rabbinic Bible, various editions, all the traditional Jewish literature that you would expect. He was actually the first to publish them, and his page numbering, his, actually his folio numbering of the Talmud is the folio numbering that we still follow. So if we uh, refer to a particular page in the Talmud, it's the page numbering that Daniel von Bomberger developed together with the uh, Jewish scholars that he worked with. But this is Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. It's a smaller Talmud, much smaller. The Babylonian Talmud is 20 volumes today. This is only one volume, a different kind of Aramaic, Palestinian Aramaic. And it's important to know that we only have one complete manuscript of Talmud Bafli, the Babylonian Talmud, and one complete manuscript left of Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. And the Talmud Yerushalmi one is kept in Leiden University, 50 to 40 kilometers away from Amsterdam. The, uh, it's, it's, known as, it's known for a fact that the, this printer, Daniel Bummer, claims that he worked with five different manuscripts try, trying to establish the proper text of the Talmud Yerushalmi. But the truth of the matter is that he probably only used the one that is now in Leiden. Uh, and this was already proven in 1899 uh, by, by, by a French scholar. And, the, um, and we, it's very interesting to look at that particular manuscript. You have to realize that this is the text that the Jews will consider Talmud Yerushalmi. Before the publication of Talmud Yerushalmi, there was no such thing as a Talmud Yerushalmi. There was only a corpus of text that people would consider Talmudic. And there would be fragments of Talmud Yerushalmi, there would perhaps be one or two other uh, full manuscripts. So there will never have been hand, uh, dozens and dozens of manuscripts of Talmud Yerushalmi. For Talmud Bafli is slightly different, I'll, I'll return to that. And but what we have to realize in terms of textual transmission, and here you see the actual manuscript uh, of Talmud Yerushalmi in Leiden University, the younger version of your speaker, um, it's a couple of years ago, and it has a wonderful colophon. And it says, Ayyechiel, son of Rabbi Yekutiel, son of Rabbi Benjamin Harofei, the doctor, the, the physician, of blessed memory, have copied this Talmud Yerushalmi. And they copied it from a corrupt and faulty exemplar. And what I was able to understand and comprehend, they corrected to the best of my knowledge. And I'm fully aware that they didn't reach out all the corruptions and faults I found in that copy, and not even half of them. And may therefore the reader of this book, who will find corruptions and faults therein, judge me according to my merit, and not blame me for all of them. And may the Lord in his mercy forgive me my sins, and cleanse me from my errors, as is it said in Psalms 19.13, who can beware of errors, clear me of unperceived guilt. So what we have is the only text that we know of Talmud Yerushalmi, the only complete text. We have a lot of fragments now, which we didn't have in the 16th century. This is a text that the Jews consider Talmud Yerushalmi. It's actually the result of a guy in Rome in the year 1289 who decided to copy to the best of his knowledge because he had a copy in front of him that he was not certain of. This is the text that we have. The same is true of Talmud Bafli. The only complete manuscript is in Munich. When you compare the text of the Munich manuscript to all other versions that we have, it's totally different. So there was a fluidity of textual transmission in Judaism that was actually for which the term the open book tradition was actually coined in uh, in, in the literature by an Israeli scholar by the name of Yisrael Tashima, by which so-called halachic literature, legal literature uh, dealing with Jewish law, was actually never, actually never constituted complete, completed text, complete, completed text. The book will always be open and would always be, always be open to discussion and later insights of the author and or of later scholars would actually always be allowed to enter into that particular text. And it was only after the invention of printing that in particular that kind of text would actually solidify and would, would be consolidated. It's very important to keep that uh, aspect in mind. And this is actually a wonderful colophon that goes to show that. And this continued all over the period, many, many, many centuries later, 1793. This was a book uh, published in Berlin by a very strange guy, Shaul of Berlin. He was known for his forgeries, literary forgeries. And this is actually also a literary forgery. This is someone attacking uh, Orthodox Jewry, but, this, but presenting his attack of Orthodox Jewry as, uh, as if he actually based it on a 15th century Italian manuscript. So he forged a 15th century Italian manuscript 
or the text of a 15th century Italian manuscript, although it took a couple of years for his enemies to realize that he was actually one who bought it. But this is still being reprinted in Israel in certain circles that consider him, because he's a wonderful rabbinic heritage and a rabbinic lineage, that consider him an enormous scholar. So it's still being reprinted as if it were something written by a really uh, wonderful scholar. It's a forgery. It's a forgery, a literary forgery. It's still a very interesting text. This is, uh, why don't we have all these texts? Why don't we have all these texts of, of the Talmud? Why do we only have one text of the Talmud? Why do we only have one text of Talmud Bafni, one of Talmud Yerushalmi? This is actually a book, a daily prayer book from the, the but it goes to show that it's not only the result of time, and it's not only the result of the problems involved in copying such enormous text for such a small community. And it's not only the result of this open book tradition of Judaism. Now it also had to do with, uh, uh, with, with, the, with, the, with the problem of, of uh, censorship. And this is a case of self-censorship in Judaism. This is a place in the Jewish prayer book where you would actually uh, have a reference, uh, a biblical reference, that in Christianity will be connected uh, to the figure of Jesus. It was considered by many, uh, I, can, I can give you the, the reference afterwards, but it, it is considered by many uh, a text that you should not speak out, that, that, you should not, that you should not pronounce and that you should not be using. This scribe of this particular manuscript decided to leave out that particular verse. Everybody knew the verse anyhow. But by doing that, he is, at least he didn't, it didn't get, it wouldn't get into trouble with the Inquisition, because that is what we're talking about. This is a letter in the Burginsky collection in Zurich, an inquisitional letter, letters from a file from an inquisitioner of the mid-15th century. And actually, this particular one stipulates the fact that Daniel Bomberg, whom I just mentioned, the printer from Venice, uh, was allowed to print Hebrew in, uh, in Venice. But the uh, Italian Inquisition, more than anything else, in the 15th century, developed an enormous interest in Jewish literature. And it already started in the 15th century, as we could have seen from this earlier manuscript, that the church became interested in anything heretical. And Jews, uh, you, can't, you, can't, you, can't call them her you cannot call them heretics, but they, 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 do, po they do pose a problem for, Christi for Christianity if you, want to, if you want to study the tradition. So Jewish books actually if, uh, were, were, were the victim of enormous scrutiny of the Inquisition by the mid 15th, by the mid 16th century, and this led actually in 1553 to the that's why I show the image of Campo de Fiori to two to, to enormous two or three enormous cases of book burning, especially burnings of the Talmud, which is another reason why we don't have so many manuscripts of the Talmud um, on Campo de Fiori in Rome, and also on uh, Piazza San Marco in uh, in Venice. Um, there were also smaller book burnings in Bologna. Um, the, this is another reason why all these books were, uh, are, are so rare. I mean, we don't have many medieval manuscripts, and we don't have a lot of printed books uh, of that particular period either. And afterwards, the uh, Inquisition developed a stronger interest in Jewish books, and Jewish owners of books were actually forced in the period, let's say, between the 1570s or 80s, and I would say the 1720s to go to the censor to come to the census. These censors were usually non were usually Jews who had converted to Christianity because they know where they knew where to look for the passages in the books that were problematic. And the these these censors would then sign the book, like the person here at the bottom, Domenico Erosolomitano. Uh, believe me. It's only because I know this. This is Domenico Jerusalemitano that I can read it this easily. 1598. He was actually a converted Jew. He was a, a well-known rabbi who became a Christian, and he worked for the Inquisition. And Jews had to pay for this wonderful service. So the Jews had to bring their books. He would sign the books. He would either expurgate certain passages, or he wouldn't. Uh, and he would do that with manuscripts, but he would also do that with printed books. And there were many dozens of such inquisitors and most of them were, the majority of them were actually baptized Jews and it's, it's an interesting thing, I mean all the Hebrew books that these people in, in Italy owned have gone past one or two or three of these censors, they signed these books and one thing that we learn is that the books were in Italy at that time 
and they include many books that were not in Italy. So it's also it's also a secondary source of information for the movement of books, which is an interesting uh, additional aspect. But we also know that the printers of Hebrew books at that very period decided, rather than to be uh, offended by the, of course they were offended, but rather than to be than to be shied away from from printing their material, they decided they decided to nego- start to negotiate with the Inquisition, and they would negotiate the content of their Hebrew books. They would leave out certain elements in their Hebrew books that were considered negative towards Christianity, and in return, they were allowed to, pray the, to, to print their prayer books and to print their Bibles and to print everything that they needed. So there was an active negotiation process going on between the Jews and the Inquisition. This is the work of an Inquisitor. This is a manuscript in the Bibliothek Eschayim, which is the oldest Jewish library in the world. It's part of our Jewish cultural quarter. It's 402 years old this year. And it's the oldest still active Jewish library. And this is a passage at the end of a book of Maimonides, where Maimonides has a very negative, uh, expresses himself very negatively about the figure of Jesus as Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the and this is where the censor decided that he would simply cross it out. And the uh, this is very clear. It's very difficult. You can no longer read what is underneath. But there are still manuscripts in which we have this version. But this would then in course of the centuries no longer be printed and it's only in the critical editions of today that we have started to uh, have these texts inside the printed book again then I'll take you because only half an hour I think I'm 28 minutes gone already uh, then I'll take you into the 18th century uh, where there's a very interesting phenomenon you will always see the, 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 the parallel production of loads of printed books on the one hand and a substantial amount of manuscripts on the other. And Judaism sets particular store, considers handwritten books particularly valuable because of the importance of handwritten Hebrew texts in the liturgy. Jews read from a written Torah scroll, Jews read from from a a written, handwritten uh, Megillah on on Sukkot, so there's the the Esther scroll, so there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of I would say admiration for the uh, handwritten text rather than for a printed text. It's considered, considered of higher value. So we, we continue to see a lot of Hebrew manuscript being produced alongside the uh, printed books, handwritten books produced alongside printed books. And the, you would actually see in many spaces, in many places, that authors and editors would actually make a conscious decision to use the one medium or the other medium, and to use the one language or the other language, and to use the one, and to, to do something really beautiful or to do it less beautiful. This is a very strange case. This is a prayer book, a regular prayer book. And you, you see here the wonderful image. This is a handwritten text. It's a handwritten text that is produced to look like a printed book. This is what they call Ba'otiyot Amsterdam, with the letters of Amsterdam, in which the Hebrew lettering looks as if it was printed with the printed letters of Amsterdam, but it is written by hand. Um, that is clear, but the image is actually copper plate. So the, this was a scribe who went through the trouble of printing from a plate the image and writing the rest of the text by hand, although there were no Hebrew printers in Vienna in those days. And he, this guy, this, this Ariebe started off a school of artists. This is the first manuscript that we have in the Jewish Philosophical Seminary Library in New York. Uh, of which today we still have some 500 manuscripts left. Luxury manuscripts produced for Jewish communities, produced for the wealthy, produced as, as uh, wedding presents, produced as, as by mitzvah presents, uh, written by hand, Bautiot Amsterdam, nicely illustrated, completely copied after printed books, textually woefully uninteresting, full of mistakes, but they're a wonderful, uh, wonderful source of, of, of the... Uh, for, for our understanding of the importance of what the book looked like, there was an interest in what the book the book, sh- the book should be written by hand, and it's the appreciation for the artisan. It's not not the appreciation for the art, but it's it's the appreciation for the craftsmanship, for the craftsmanship involved in producing a handwritten book. This is the mishogaz in good Yiddish that the, 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 the strange things that were produced in that same period. And it goes to show, so we have a printer who actually, uh, we have a, a, a scribe who actually goes to the trouble of printing an image. This is an Esther scroll in uh, Bryn Mawr College. 
what you don't see, and that's always the problem with a digital presentation, is the size of the piece. This piece is this big. It's nothing. And there's one in the British Library that's even smaller. A scroll. And this is by a scribe, Aaron Schreiber-Herling. I ascribe it to him. A scribe of this very same school. Well, again, this is about craftsmanship. You can hardly read it. But people wanted to own it. And the, so this is actually also what I call a, a, an almost Jewish Baroque, which is a contradiction in term, is a Jewish Baroque uh, bibliophilic aberration. That's what it is. It is a, it is a, a total interest in the... It's the first time in Jewish history that the actual text becomes less important than the outer shape of the book, which is a very interesting phenomenon. But it has all, everything to do with craftsmanship. It has to do with the appreciation for the work of the scribe, and it has to do with a deep appreciation for the work of the scribe, because his work is considered holy. And this goes to show, I mean, it's wonderful work. And you're looking at a couple of square centimeters here, or square, square inches, whatever you prefer in this country. Uh, this is another thing that the guy did. The size of this is approximately a U.S. letter. And this has the four, that's the five festive scrolls, the book of Esther, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Ruth, uh, Song of Songs, and, and, and the, uh, and, have all, and they have them in five different languages. On a sheet of parchment this big, this is in the uh, Austrian National Library in Vienna. And the quality is outrageous. And, the, and the, the artist, actually, when you look into, in the, in the uh, Oskuli tour, uh, you can see inside the letters that he signs his name. He says, Aaron Wolf, Kaiserlich und Königlich, Bibliothekschreiber in Wien, Anno 17... What is it? It's too far away, 1748. Um, so, this is more than penmanship, more than anything else. And he did this... This was offered, actually, this is in the Austrian National Library because it was offered to the emperor as a gift of the Jews to the emperor. And he calls himself Kaiserlich Königlich Bibliothekschreiber. So he was employed as a scribe, as a Jew, as a scribe in the Imperial and, and, and Royal Library in Vienna. And we have other stuff from this very same period. It was not only in Vienna that this happened. This happened also in Northern Germany. This is a so-called Haggadah, a Passover ritual that is read at the Seder night, the first night of Passover. And this is a Haggadah that is supposed to look exactly like a printed Amsterdam Haggadah, 1695 printed in Amsterdam. And this is copied by hand in 1728. And in Hebrew, for those of you who read that, it actually says so at the bottom, or in the middle section, it says, I copied this Haggadah with the letters as they were printed in the city of Amsterdam. So it is a deliberate attempt to produce handwritten books that look like printed books. And the, this is the printed Haggadah of 1695. And here we have, which is an image of the four sons, and here we have an image of another manuscript Haggadah a little bit later, um, where we actually see a festive meal that's supposed to depict five rabbis in the city of Bnei Barak who were discussing the exodus from Egypt all night until the students would come to warn that the time for the morning prayer had come. But you see more than five rabbis sitting at the table. And the reason why is that this image was taken in the Amsterdam Haggadah, into the Amsterdam Haggadah, inspired by an image of Matthäus Merian 50 years earlier, a Christian uh, artist who, who did biblical illustrations, um, of the festive meal that Joseph prepared for his brothers in Egypt. So there were a lot more people at the table, at the table, and they decided, well, okay, it's a table scene, it's, it does the job. And everybody accepted it. Not only that, it was never corrected towards the five. We have, out of the 150, 200 examples that I've seen, also in manuscript, not only in printed books, but also in manuscript, the large majority, more than 90%, will have more than five people sitting at the table. So it goes to show the, 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 the strength of, a, of the original, of the original printed version, and people wanted something like the original rather than something that would actually reflect the content of the text. But this is a manuscript Haggadah, and the image at the bottom, this is Captain Botley, and the image at the bottom is printed, cut out, printed, colored by hand, and printed onto the parchment. Yet another example of the combination of the printing technique and the handwritten technique. And it goes further, this is a printed image, and it was, it was only colored by hand later. This is a 
another one printed on parchment, which is again a bibliophilic aberration that 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 was that became very popular in certain well-to-do circles, especially in uh, in in uh, in Central Europe, but also in Amsterdam, where people would actually go to the trouble of printing their books on parchment or even on 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 uh, colored papers or even on silk. So you have all kinds of materials. It's just about the 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 wealth that you can actually show and the and the importance for the outer uh, looks of the manuscript. This is another manuscript on let me see this is the this is seventeen eighteen. This is another manuscript. This is actually Mo, this is uh, Moses slaying the Egyptian guard while uh, while it, while working uh, as a slave in as a slave in Egypt. And this is a similar one. I don't know what happened there, but the uh, I don't know. Uh, but this actually is printed on parchment and colored by hand, also in the Bodleian. And you can see there was all kinds of stuff going on because this was produced for a well-to-do patron by the name of David Oppenheim. And this David Oppenheim was, was the number one collector of Hebrew books in 18th century Europe. Uh, he died in 1736 and any book until 1736 that you will be looking for you will actually find in the Bodleian because the Bodleian managed to buy his collection in 1809 um, for nothing because nobody was interested uh, or at least for a very very low I think it was 19,000 thaler which is for the number one collection of Hebrew books of the period uh, that is what you pay for one image today at Christie um, the, but what you, what you actually see here is to what extent all kinds of technical stuff had to happen on the press while printing these books on parchment, while printing on paper, while printing on colored papers, he ordered more than one copy, many oftentimes on different materials, and all kinds of stuff was happening at the press only because this guy wanted these luxury copies. But we know that these actually helped to finance the rest of the paper edition. So he paid enormously for that, and it helped to finance the rest of the paper edition. So the, it also was to the benefit of the of the of the community. This is a totally different thing, but I wanted to show that this is all about beauty. But at the same time, in in the same well, a little bit earlier, 1611. This is a piece from the Braginsky collection. It was copied in Hebron by a Yemenite scholar who lived in Hebron in in, in the land of Israel. Uh, a commentary that he wrote on the Mishnah, which is an earlier version or the the, the core text of the of the Talmud. This guy was too poor to. Uh, provide himself with the paper that he needed to write down his commentary and he was too poor to have his commentary printed. So he had a printed copy that was given to him in which he actually would, would pen his entire commentary in the margins and then later on he was given a, a couple of uh, piles of paper to write his commentary into this volume and this is the only volume that we have and he, he recounts that story. So it's not only about wealth, that's the point that I want to make with this one but how much can you do in half an hour? And this is a completely different thing. I mentioned language. I mentioned the aspect of language. This is a, a piece in Spanish, Providencia de Dios con Israel. This is a text written by a wonderful uh, scribe working in Amsterdam, who is actually known, uh, Yuda Maccabeo, who is actually known uh, as a person with whom you could uh, order forged trade documents with Spain during the war. Uh, with Spain, so he is mentioned in, in in Spanish sources. So he knew actually how to make a living uh, out of his wonderful writing hand. But he worked for the elite in 17th century Amsterdam, the Portuguese Jewish elite, the Jews who had been uh, forced to leave Portugal in the 15th century, became a very wealthy community in Amsterdam in the 17th, and the basically using the trade opportunity that Amsterdam offered to them. But they also had to bring a lot of the people, a lot of their, their, their so-called Sephardic Jews, Spanish Portuguese Jews, had become Christians, back into Judaism. And one of the ways that they tried to do that was to write tractates like these, in which the superiority of the Jewish religion as opposed to the Christian religion would be shown. The question is, of course, because these are very strongly theological texts, to what extent were these efficient, and to what extent were these effective, uh, in, in terms of, of reaching out to the people because how many people really understand or could really understand what was going on there but uh, they wanted these books to look beautiful and in Amsterdam basically there was freedom of the printing press you were allowed to print whatever you wanted uh, 
but this was tricky. This was against Christianity, so it was decided rather that this would not be printed. These texts would be circulated in manuscripts. So we have dozens of such manuscripts all over the place uh, in which we have these polemical texts against Christianity meant to bring back Jews, original Jews that had become Christian uh, into, the, uh, into Judaism. But it's also wonderful calligraphy, of course, and the calligraphy that is influenced by the period. This is a Kabbalistic work, a Jewish mystical work done in Amsterdam in 1675, actually financed by a person by the name of Ishak de Matatya Aboab, whom you see at the bottom, five lines from the bottom, Ishak de Matatya Aboab, he's the patron for the book. Uh, and this is his son, Matatya de Ishak Aboab, but he was also a calligrapher. And his son, the calligrapher, was able to write, this is a very little small scroll that he did, with a show of hands, with the show of the hands that he was capable of writing. And you could see that he, can, he, could, he could write beautiful cursive Hebrew, he could write square Hebrew, he could also write Latin script, he could also write Arabic. We have a lot of examples of a script. He, he copied this in 1690. And actually the Hebrew at the bottom, in the middle uh, panel, the Hebrew at the bottom, the Hebrew letters are actually standing on top of the other Hebrew letters as well. So it's... Uh, it's just that I don't, I don't have an extra image of that. But if you look at it very carefully, you know Hebrew, you can see that he also mirrored the letters on top of the other ones. This is the cursive script that he did. He did it in 1690. And this is cursive script from 1480, from the time that the Jews were still in Spain, before they were forcibly uh, baptized or had to, had to leave Spain in 1492. What you see is that the guy made the, and this is script that he did later on in the manuscript in the Hague, and what you actually see is that he made a deliberate attempt to write the script, the semi-cursive script of the period before the expulsion, because he wanted to re-identify with pre-expulsion Jewry in Spain. So he wanted. So this is not a developed version of the Sephardic, the Sephardic semi-cursive of the Spanish-Portuguese semi-cursive hand. No, it is a deliberate attempt to pull back. Uh, pre-expulsion Spanish identity into the script. And that is something that is very important in the uh, post-medieval period, that is the extent to which Jews identified through the outer shape of their script. And the, print, the printing press had a strong influence on it in a negative sense, because the letters that we print are usually Sephardic letters, and Ashkenazic Jews from the Western European countries would oftentimes, <coughs> and the Eastern European countries, would also use that in printed books. But if they would write their Torah scrolls, if they would have inscriptions on the walls of their synagogues, they will also always be in their more Gothic Ashkenazi script. So there's a strong sense of identity connected to Hebrew script. This is toward the end of when I'm reaching the half hour already. I'll just give you a couple of very beautiful images. This is the earliest Esther scroll that we know of, 1564, copied by a woman. The text is copied by a woman. We have medieval texts, less than 10, of which we know that they have been copied by women. We have the, one of the first printers in Mantua, Abraham Konat, worked together with his wife, Estelina Konat. We have a, one Hebrew manuscript in the 19th century was illuminated by a woman. So there are a lot of, there is female involvement uh, in Hebrew manuscripts. Probably many cases these were the daughters of rabbis or the daughters of scholars who would actually become involved, but we don't know exactly. The illustrations or the decorations were probably not done by Stelina Bapendachem, but this is the first dated Esther scroll that we have. And the Esther scroll is the only text in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Esther, in which the name of God is not mentioned. And it is used in a liturgical setting, but as a result of that, it is often it is considered okay, let's put it that way, to illustrate it and even to illustrate it for the, in the liturgical setting. So, the, uh, so it's a text that's considered of lesser uh, hierarchical high, high value within the uh, holy text because of the lack of the name or because of the absence of the name of God. So we have an enormous tradition of illuminated Megillot. This is her colophon. This is a frontispiece because this was Italy. In Italy it really became popular to do uh, Esther scrolls. This is a printed book, of course, by Francesco Grisolini, the illustrations by Francesco Grisolini, who also did an astral And this is, a, a yet again, a printed frame in which the text would be written by hand. Again, a combination of the two techniques, which is very typical of anything luxurious after the invention of printing. There's a constant combination 
of, of, of uh, production techniques uh, that is really highly typical of the high rank of the high rank stuff that we have. So of course, we have a lot of manuscripts that are simply copied by the, like the typical manuscript that you would have in any uh, culture. But the high rank manuscript will oftentimes provide such a strange insight into the appreciation of technology and into, into the, uh, the, uh, the appreciation of, of book production technology. This is one of the most fantastic examples that I know of, uh, of an ancestral, which is, of course, in terms of the art, uh, not very Jewish. I mean, it could have been anything. If you would, if you would swap the script, it could be anything. Uh, but the Jews appreciated it. They were living in Italy, and they appreciated this kind of uh, imagery. At the bottom, you would have the full uh, description of the biblical, the, the illustrations to the biblical book of Esther, and you would have these wonderful columns, and you would have wonderful images like you would have here. This, and this is enormous. I mean, this big, so and seven meters long. Uh, whatever that is in America. Uh, <laughs> eight yards. Uh, and this is another thing which is also very important. There was also another tradition, very, and that's the last images that I'm going to show. This is another tradition uh, that was very popular starting in uh, Italy again. It was always Italy where the thing started, and then it would be copied by other communities. This is a marriage contract. The marriage contract is actually the, it was owned by the Jewish woman. And the marriage contract is, uh, stipulates basically the rights of the woman uh, as a result of the marriage. And it also stipulates the height of the dowry and the content of the dowry and the content of the extra gifts that were uh, given to the wedded couple. The text will be read out aloud in synagogue during the, was still being read out aloud in synagogue during the wedding ceremony. And the, this was actually a wonderful moment. Uh, but which you could actually, because it was held up high, but which you could show to the community what kind of wedding contract you could afford. Uh, so people would start to make more and more opulent uh, wedding contracts, and this went to the point in where in the city of Ancona in 1768 and 1820 there was a law or a, a, a decree by the rabbis uh, stipulating the maximum, maximum amount of money that one was allowed to spend on a ketubah. So people really went overboard. We have thousands of such ketubot marriage contracts in the Jewish world still around. And this was one done in Venice in 1648. And part of this, this is again the combination, the, the lines, the outer lines are all printed. And the, hand, the text of the contract is done by hand. The uh, coat of arms is not a real coat of arms. It's a family insignia of the, because Jews were not allowed to have actual coats of arms. But the um, the family insignia we have that was done by hand, the coloring was done by hand, some of the imagery is done by hand, but the large majority of the imagery, the outlines, was actually printed. And again, so it's again a combination of handwritten text. On the right-hand side, we have this, the text of the contract. On the left-hand side, we have the additional stipulations that go with the contract. We have all kinds of imagery. The signs of the zodiac, and references to the biblical figures uh, that bear the same names as the weather couple or bear the same names as the, the, the parents of the weather couple. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a different lecture on, on Ketubot, which Sharon Minsk could probably give better than I do. But, the, uh, but it's very rich. And also, these are enormous. This is one full sheet of parchment, typically. And, the, uh, and this is, of course, apart from being a show-off project, it's also a wonderful gift to the bride that would actually be hung on the wall. And we have instances, I don't show you an image, but we have instances in which actually the border would be reused. So the, the let's say the uh, grandparents would actually be given a ketubah in which the border, the decorated border, would be the decorated border of their grandparents. What do I know? Text would be cut out and they would paste a different text in the, in the center. So it was really something that was, was also supposed to be a gift, but also supposed to be a sign of wealth. We have the signatures at the bottom, and you can see the amount of detail in the production of such a piece. This is not one of the worst examples, of course, because you, I'm not afraid to try to achieve effect. Um, and this is on the fourth day of the week. It says on the uh, 15th day of the month of Tishri, in the year 5409, according to the... Uh, the counting that we do here in the city of Venice. And then it stipulates on which river. There will always be a river. There will be the name of the city and there will be a river. 
It's a very typical text in Aramaic, and this was copied in Amsterdam in this particular case in 1617 by the Portuguese Jews who were actually inspired. They, they had all their international contacts were actually inspired. What is the point that I want to make here? The point that I want to make here is that we are looking at a culture, if we discuss the Jewish books since the invention of printing, we're looking at Jewish books that were produced in Yemen, Morocco, in Russia, and in London. We're talking about books that were produced in 1469 in Rome, but we're also talking about Hebrew manuscripts that were produced in Yemen as late as the early 20th century, where the books, a large majority of the books for the lack of printed books were copied by hand. We're talking about upper-class books with a strange interest in, in, the, in, the, in the technology and a strange change interest in opulence more than anything else. We're also talking about scrapbooks, we're talking about primers, we're talking about all the kinds of things that you have. And all the, these are all the manuscripts. At the same time, we have these enormous amount of printed books. And I've tried to do the math on uh, how many printed books were there at all in the Jewish world. We don't know exactly, of course, for every time of, of, in, in history how many Jews were alive, but we know that for this small, there were 200,000 Jews maximum living around the Mediterranean in the 15th century. They produced these uh, 145 editions, of which we now still have 2,000 copies, so maybe we had 10,000 copies, whatever. We don't know about survival of manuscripts, about survival of printed books. And this continued. If you, you, of course, you see when you... I, I tried to do the math with 300 books per edition, which is very conservative. Uh, and, then you've, or, and, and if you compare them, what we have in terms of manuscript with the assumed number of printed books, of course you see that in the course of the 18th and the 19th century, printing becomes much more prominent than copying by hand. But it was always a market for the uh, upper class, and there was always a necessity for the lower class to write by hand. And it, has an, it had an enormous influence. This, this particular fact had an enormous influence. There was a small group of people everywhere. The upper class was wealthy, but the large majority were poor. Uh, and this had an enormous effect on the transmission of Jewish texts, not only in the Middle Ages, where I spoke about the open book, but up until the 20th century. The, the open tradition of, of transmitting, uh, the open transmission of, of Jewish knowledge through books was one that was always a parallel development. It was always a parallel development. Printed books, which were the large majority and became a larger majority. Manuscripts, which became a larger minority in the course of time. But at the end of the day, you will always have to judge both the handwritten version and the printed version. I think, I remember my, my, my uh, doctor father, in good Dutch, German, uh, Peter Gumbert, a very well-known uh, manuscript person of the Middle Ages, has described to him the fact that uh, Jewish books of the, Med of the Middle Ages were typically not produced in institutionalized settings like the Christian book. The large, the big difference of Jewish books of the Middle Ages, uh, the difference between Jew books, Jewish books of the Middle Ages and Christian books of the Middle Ages would be that majority or many Christian books would actually be produced in monasteries, they would be produced according to Pesia system in universities, and there would be some kind of guided transmission of the majority of texts, and that didn't exist in Judaism. And I described it to him as an exception. And he said, you have to turn this around. From a global perspective, Christianity is the exception. Because what you describe is true in so many different cultures, not only in the Jewish culture, it's true in the, in the Islamic book, it's true for many books from the Far East, it's true for many other books. So uh, what this goes to show, these large majority of what I showed to you are actually books that are considered by libraries oriental books, which is crazy. They were done in Germany, they were done in France, they were done in Spain, they were done in Italy, they were European books, they happened to have an oriental alphabet. But they were produced in Europe, they were, they were to be understood in the European, European context, the script, script, script happens to be of oriental origin. So what I hope to show is not only the wealth of Jewish book production in this period, but also the open eye, or, or I invite you to look at the Christian tradition with the open eye of the global perspective rather than the European one. That's all I want to say. Thank you.
I was only 10 minutes late. Yeah. <laughs> Rashi was a, a French scholar who lived in the city of Troyes, northern France, uh, between 1040 and 1105. Uh, I taught medieval literature, that's why I know about it. Uh, so the, uh, he, Rashi is the number one commentator in Jewish tradition. So a Jewish boy will never study Torah, the first five books of, the five books of Moses, without the commentary of Rashi. You will never study Talmud, especially Babylonian Talmud, without the commentary of Rashi. The truth of the matter is that Rashi, so 11th, 11th century, uh, early 12th century French scholar, the truth is that we don't have one single example of Rashi's own writing. What we have of Rashi is all transmitted by his pupils. And Rashi allowed, with this very same concept of the open book, allowed his students to work on his commentaries and allowed the students to enter their insights into his commentary. We know that for a fact. Um, the, what we today consider as a, as a, a well-transmitted, accepted text of Rashi is actually through the printing work of Daniel Bomberg, who was the first to include a version of the commentary of Rashi in the printed book, um, in the printed editions of the Rabbinic Bible, where you would have more than one commentary, uh, that, that commentary is actually the result of three or four generations of his son and their pupils, his grandson and their pupils, editing the, the, the commentaries of Rashi. And we don't have one single page of text that was copied by Rashi. One of the things that we... Uh, and he, I mean, he's really, there's two, there are two enormous figures in medieval Jewish literature. One is Rashi and the other one is Maimonides. For Rashi, we have nothing. For Maimonides, we have five or six major, major texts in his autograph versions. So it's a completely, and that is, Maimonides lived, was born in Spain, went to Egypt, and we have a, a, an enormous corpus of, of his text in his own hand. There's a completely different redaction process involved in the text of Maimonides, and these were edited, and these were well received in the Jewish world, also through a, a group of translators in southern, in southern France. Rashi is totally different. So the, actually, Rashi is a wonderful example because what we consider the standard commentary, Jewish commentary on, the, on, the, on, on Torah, on the entire Bible, on the Hebrew Bible, on the Old Testament, and when we consider the standard, simple, whatever simple means, commentary on the Talmud, it's Rashi, but we don't know whether he wrote it or not. We know that it was uh, assigned to him, we know that people ascribed to him, we know that the large majority of the content was his, but the version that we study was certainly not his and was the result of a redaction process, which was actually, uh, which was actually guided by the very principle that I mentioned, which is the idea that an open book is what Jews were interested in. It's, a, it's also an oral tradition. A lot of the Jewish knowledge was, was uh, transmitted orally. The Talmud is the, uh, the Mishnah, is the first, first, first section of the Talmud. It was done around 200, the Babylonian Talmud around 450. Uh, the, these are written versions of oral tradition but there's a strong editorial involvement of the people who produce these uh, written versions. And these written versions are those that were transmitted to us. But within the community, there was oftentimes a higher regard for the oral transmission and for the quality of oral transmission. And we should never underestimate the importance, especially in a medieval society, of 
oral transmission. And if you hear something from your rabbi, who can be an esteemed rabbi, this is actually of higher value than the manuscript that you would have copied from his neighbor. So the, and what you would do, if you would copy that manuscript from your neighbor, you would copy the text and you would enter the insights of your rabbi into the text and create a new text. This is exactly what we see in this Babylonian, in this Palestinian Talmud colophon that I read out to you a lot, that people felt the freedom to, to interfere in the text. And Rashi's text is, is probably the best example of that. I hope that it doesn't complicate it, but answer it. I, I'm, and, yeah, what can I say? <laughs> this is what we believe. It's not just me. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Enormously, and enormously, no, enormously. The best example is actually the Zohar. The, Zo- the Zohar is the, the important text of Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. Uh, the Zohar was first printed in 1560 in Mantua, concurrently in Mantua and in Cremona. Before 1560, there was no such thing as the Zohar. The Zohar is a medieval creation. Uh, it is ascribed to a Mishnaic scholar, but it's a medieval, uh, medieval creation of Spain. There was a, what, they, what scholars now call a Zoharic corpus of text that, were put, that was put into a... <coughs> sorry, that was put into, a, into the two printed versions. And it was only after that through printing them in 500, 600, 700, whatever number of copies, um, that the Jewish world got to know this. And this, so this had an enormous influence for the canonization of the important literature. But Kabbalah, at the same time, the Jewish mystical tradition, uh, is also a wonderful example of a genre in which, for its secret nature, not everybody was supposed to deal with mysticism, not everybody was supposed to read these texts. You were supposed to be male, which is difficult in the, it, today. When you're supposed to be male, you're supposed to be 40, at least 40 years old, and you're supposed to be a Talmud Chacham, you're supposed to be a scholar. And, the, um, and if not, you were not allowed to study Kabbalah because it was considered too dangerous. Many of these texts would still be copied by hand way into the 19th century. And so you would have the standard text being uh, consolidated by the print, through the printing press, but the uh, but there would still be a manuscript edition alongside that, which was very active. I mean, with certain texts, we only have the manuscripts uh, still in, in, into the 19th century. The Shulchan Aruch, which is actually the let's say the, the definitive code of Jewish law, codification of traditional Jewish law, is a wonderful example of a text that actually. Uh, could reach uh, authority right from its first moment of publication uh, and the, because of the printing press. So if, if Rashi's text would be, would be distributed through the generations and would, 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 be, would be very popular among his, uh, among his pupils and among the, the pupils of his pupils and the pupils of their pupils, uh, but it would take centuries for Rashi to become the enormous enormously famous person that he became through the printing press. Shulchan Aruch is a wonderful example of a, a fame that exploded as a result of the printing press but it also led to less, uh, less freedom of movement for those who wanted to codify Jewish law. At the same time Jewish law, even up, up until today, I mean with the internet, there'll be uh, so-called Shilotot Shuvot, questions and answers asked to rabbis what are we, how are we to deal with this and how are we to deal with that uh, it will be online, it will be written by hand, it will be published, it will have all, all kinds of... The, 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 the tradition is still moving, what is changing is the medium. But the idea that this is open is an idea of, that is still very much alive today as well. I'm reliably informed by Professor Scheimer that all the secrets of Kabbalistic mysticism will be revealed to you. 
at the reception at their book school immediately following this. But meanwhile, please join me in thanking Professor Scheider. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.